welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. Hey, guys. As always, we are your favorite, not so much favorite. Oh, my God. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you're getting a little ballsy there. <laughs> we got one of us. Hey guys, we're your favorite podcast you've never heard of. You've never ever heard of. Oh my god, maybe that's the one I should say. <laughs> god, I yeah, you're you're on your own for that. <laughs> All right, so let me let me start over. Hey guys, today we're gonna learn about a miniature pair of tits and how to get your rocket off. <laughs> that was a good one. I really like that. <laughs> we're adults. We're that's totally things adults say. We're absolutely adults. Wait, how big is this rocket? Oh, oh, it's enormous. Yeah, so it's actually not what you're thinking, guys. It's a real rocket, and it's a NASA rocket. Well, multiple NASA rockets. So I'm doing Annie J easily today. She was born April 23rd, 1933 in Birmingham, Alabama to a Samuel Bird Easley and a Mary Melvina Hoover. That is a great middle name. I didn't really think about the middle name until right now. Wait, what's, what's her middle name? Uh, Melvina. Okay, that's it's, that's distinct. It sounds like Velvita. Now you've ruined it. Okay, now, thanks now for that. Now I've ruined it. You're welcome. Now I just want cheese. I'm really hungry. Um. Anyway, so Annie had one older brother, and I couldn't find his name anywhere. Uh, like, I Googled the name. And I can only get one page to give me an answer. It said Judith, but I question the credibility of this page because right below that on the same page, it was a question of what was Miley Cyrus's brother's name. And if they're going to answer those two things on the same page, I'm just going to go with probably very incorrect. So we don't know Annie's brother's name, but we do know that she Wait. had an older brother. <laughs> Wait, so so you did your research on a NASA, like a literal, like, rocket scientist, mm-hmm. and they just never mentioned her sibling at they, all? No, they never mentioned his name, which I think is okay. weird. That's too funny, because for the person that I'm doing, um, out of all the research I did, there's only one instance where they offhandedly mentioned, oh, hey, by the way, they had a sibling that does something really similar. Oh. <laughs> I was like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're just now telling me this? Like, they completely glossed over, like, like did, her sister. Where did this come from? So, I mean, from? but at least they named her. Oh, yeah, no. I still, I'm pretty sure it was not Judith, but I'm going to go with Judith. Okay, so we have a rocket scientist and a mystery brother. A mystery brother, yeah. So, okay. not, not. I mean, I guess definitely a rocket scientist. I'll, I'll get into it. Um, okay. What we do know about her and her brother is that they were raised by their single mother. Uh, so dad was not in the picture. I still don't know why he wasn't in the picture. I didn't get that much information. There was not a lot of information going on Annie Easley. Like, I got maybe three or four, like, decent pages worth of information that I was looking at. Yeah. And I was, like, really trying. Like, even I I went to, like, Google Scholarly to get, see if I could find some of her, like, her actual work anything about her any kind of journal and none of that is because of the time that she worked and the time that she lived nothing like that is like for public use right now so like when I was doing Mary Anning like I I found all of her journals like I can download everything because there were no like rights to it so her there are definitely rights um and probably some security issues yeah, too. So, but, um, but, yeah, so yeah. What, so she was. What year was she born? Nineteen thirty-three. Thirty-three. Okay. No, I just mm-hmm. want to get some context as to like by the time you know when she's in her twenties, like what decade we're talking about. Oh, she was okay. um like in her twenties and nineteen fifties. Okay. Yeah. Her mother was like under the school of thought that her children could do whatever they wanted as long as they worked hard. Um. So mm-hmm. she would consistently tell her daughter that that like you can literally do anything you want to and from what I understand easily was like maybe but also I am an African-American woman in the 1940s 1950s so my education is limited 
and like in Alabama. In Alabama. My education is limited. In the deep south. My choices are limited. From fifth grade through high school, she went to private schools. So that was cool. I don't know exactly how that happened or or like how she got into it, but she found her way into private schools. And then she graduated as class valedictorian. Nice. Yeah. Um, And then while she was in high school, she was like, okay, well, I guess I could do medical stuff. I guess I could be a nurse. And then she like did like a quick write and she was like, you know what? I'm going to be a pharmacist. So she went to Xavier University in New Orleans to study to become a pharmacist. The problem is she was only there for about two years. She dropped out, moved back to Birmingham, uh, got married. And then during that time, she became a substitute teacher. Um, But because she went to college for two years and she was a class valedictorian and she was educated, she that was like she used that advantage to like help other African-Americans around her. Um, Mm -hmm. So back in that time period, you know, Jim Crow laws. There's you you remember those from American. I mean, I don't personally remember them, but I know oh, of them. You know of them, yeah. yeah. So there were laws that made it really difficult for African Americans to vote around that time period. So they were forced to pass a literacy test, and they were also forced to pay like a toll, like a like a payment to vote. If they could get past the test, they also had to come up with the money. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, so because she was educated, she actually went out of her way to help other African Americans pass the literacy exam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she was like kind of like a like a tutor for them, and she helped a lot of people. So that's cool. Yeah, and I mean that's that's a great way to kind of fight um, voter discrimination. Yeah. So those obviously were like removed like later on, but she had to deal with that, and everybody there had to deal with that. Um, but at some point, she and her husband moved to Cleveland. I don't have the exact year for that. But she wanted to continue mm-hmm. her, her education when she was in Cleveland. The region's only pharmaceutical school, like, closed down recently. Like, it had shut okay. down. So yeah. she had to find, like, a plan B. And she, in 1955, read a news article about twin sisters who worked as human computers at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Um, so that's actually the NACA. And it's the precursor to, to NASA. She thought the work of the human computer sounded interesting, so she applied for the job, and within two weeks she was working there. And it's now known as NASA's Glenn's, Glenn Research Center? Okay, in Ohio? In, in Cleveland, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, what the heck is a human computer, you ask? NACA originally hired human computers to take time-intensive calculations needed for projects off of the male engineer's workloads, therefore freeing up time for the man to do the cooler, more lucrative work. It's not surprising at all, unfortunately. Okay, all right. Yep. So the human computers were essential to every stage of the project from like the very beginning to like the middle research studies and like putting all those numbers together and why did the like, why was that trajectory off? Like that sort of thing. Um, And they hired a ton of them. So she wasn't the only one, which brings me to my my quick side note. This probably all sounds familiar because in 2016, a movie was released that featured other African-American human computers uh, Mm -hmm. working for NACA, like, around that time period. But those ladies, they were were down in Florida. Right? I haven't seen the movie yet. It looked really good. Yeah. No, it was great, actually. So I'm not familiar. I just bought it, and, like, my roommate and his friend and I, we watched it. So it was really great because, like, I I was, like, crying at the end of it. Like, it was intense. Um, Yeah. So... If you guys don't know what movie I'm talking about, it's called Hidden Figures. And I don't remember if they were. I think they were in Florida, like the main. I, don't, I can't remember where they were actually, like, settled. Um, but it followed the life of Katherine Johnson, who worked on the trajectories for a lot of uh, manned missions, and then her two colleagues. So one's name was Dorothy Vaughn, who eventually led the programming section of the Analysis and Computation Division and prepared mm-hmm. uh, for the introduction of machine computers into NACA, or I guess I'll just call it NASA because it, it is NASA. But she would push herself and the other staff members to learn Fortran, which is a programming language. And then the other lady is Mary Jackson, 
who eventually moved on to become NASA's first black female engineer. So there are all these great women who, like, contributed to NASA and to the missions that they, you know, sent out. Um, But Mm -hmm. the reason I chose Easley was because she wasn't one of the ladies featured in the movie. And I wanted to have somebody that nobody had known about or, like, nobody knew about. Um, Yeah. So she... She's on my list for this week because of that. But yes, if you ever get a chance, watch that movie. It's fucking great. Mm -hmm. So she was at the NACA for 34 years. And then when machines were introduced, she was also one of the individuals who evolved from a human computer to a computer programmer using Fortran. And then she moved to projects that surrounded themselves around like energy production and conservation. From mathematician to computer engineer to... Uh, I mean, well, she did mathematics for the energy production and conservation, but she had more of, like, a role in them. So it's really hard to find those projects that she worked on because it was from NASA. And there is definitely a confidential, like... Yeah, I know it's still sensitive material. Absolutely. So I did not get a lot of that. Okay. What I did get is from the 1960s to the 1970s. So we know that she worked on studies in alternative energy, where she analyzed solar and wind technologies. She identified energy conversion systems. She determined the life of storage batteries, like the ones used in hybrid cars. And she helped Mm -hmm. develop nuclear-powered rocket systems. And that last one is what she's really known for. She helped develop software for the Centaur rocket. Uh, And what the Centaur rocket is, it's a high-energy booster rocket that utilizes liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, and it's known as America's workhorse in space. Oh, so we're we're still utilizing that same type of rocket today. Oh, oh, yeah. Hold on. I'm going to get into science real quick. So I didn't know know anything about rockets. I I don't don't either. Yeah. So, like, not only do I not know a lot about dinosaurs, I don't know a lot about, like, space or how we get up there. Space rockets, actually, really quick, quick side note, is I found all this information on YouTube, like, kind of like this quick breakdown from a YouTube channel called Vintage Space, and it's run by a female creator, which I thought was okay. really cool. Uh, her so name... it sounds like, what? it sounds like we'll definitely have a link to that in our show notes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah she's really great. I love her. Her name is Amy Shira Teetle. I think is how you say her last name. Uh, and it's an entire channel devoted to space. And it's, like, crazy. So thank you, Amy, for that. Because I was just like, what the heck is happening? What am I reading about? What's going on? And it's really simple stuff. But for somebody like me who, like, never looked into it and never really paid attention when people were going, this is how rockets work. Uh, this is the basic stuff. It was really helpful. So thanks. Uh, not like you hear this because they're... 20 people listening to our podcast. (laughs) Just keep going. Just keep going. (laughs) Anyway, in short, in order for rockets to get into space, they need to reach Earth's orbit. So in order for them to get into Earth's orbit, enough power needs to be used to get the mass of the shuttle, uh, satellite or whatever, to the Earth's orbit. So there's like weight and mass that needs to be pushed up and out. So many rockets use multiple stage firing. And, like, the bottom stages, just think of them as, like, different compartments that hold, like, fuel. Um, And they house enough fuel to get those stages above them further into the atmosphere. Once the fuel in the bottom stage is gone, it detaches from the entire rocket and gets pulled down to Earth by its gravity. So, like, that bottom Mm -hmm. part just falls off, goes into the sea, whatever. And then that allows the now smaller rocket with a smaller mass to fire its second stage and get the shuttle closer to the orbit. So it's just like in different stages is exactly what it sounds like. So some rockets have three stages, some have four, but the process repeats until the top stage of the rocket gets into Earth's orbit. Mm -hmm. So the Centaur rocket, which is what Annie Easley was working on or helped develop a program for, is designed to be the upper stage of the rocket, giving its final powerful boost into the space. So it was used on, or it has been used on so many different shuttles and shuttle families. So, like, the Atlas family is, like, just kind of, like, think of, like, the Corolla and how, like, the Corolla S, the Corolla whatever. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that kind of thing. So Atlas, Titan, Saturn, those are all names of different kinds of things. And they're, this, this 
like particular stage is in a good chunk of things is what I'm trying to get at here. So this rocket launched like communications, weather, military satellites, and space vehicles. And this included the 1997 Cassini spacecraft to Saturn and the InSight spacecraft that landed very recently on Mars, November 26, 2018. I mean, so her work is still getting a lot of use and um, it sounds like has, you know, over the decades still been invaluable to to uh, launching rockets. Yeah, no, it's, it's crazy. So this, she, she just put all this work into like 1960s, 1970s of like, okay, we're going into space. We're sending everything out. We're going to learn more about these planets. Like, And I don't even know if she knew that this was all going to be done using the program that she helped build, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I do know that uh, like once she had retired, she was still like going out and like talking and doing conferences and like speaking as a like a woman scientist. So mm-hmm. that's pretty freaking awesome. Did she ever in any of those lectures like talk about any difficulties she encountered, not only being a woman but being like African American as well in oh, that absolutely. field? Absolutely, yeah. So like. Later on in her career, she actually took on the role of an equal opportunity counselor in NASA. Mm-hmm. So any complaints regarding race, gender, or age, like, she was one of the people addressing it. So she was more than aware that these were things that she had to overcome and the, the women around her had to overcome as well. Mm-hmm. And then she also, which I think is really cool, like, after she, like, built this program or helped build this program for, like, space rockets, she still went back to school and got her BS in mathematics at Cleveland State University. Yeah, but not pharmaceuticals at all? No, 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 no. She's like, no, I'm going to do this now. But I just thought it was crazy. Like, she like she has this great career, and, like, she's like, I'm still going to go back to school. Like, that sounds like something I would do. That sounds like something I have done, honestly. <laughs> like, I mean, way to be super intimidating to all the little like freshmen or even the yeah. upperclassmen who are finally getting into the more advanced classes <laughs> and they're like wait who are you? you're not the professor oh and wh- um, where did you work like, oh okay <laughs> all right i don't know i don't know if i would be in that position where i would be like yeah i did this thing i've had like decades long career or decades long career at nasa do i really need a degree you know what yeah I'm gonna go get a degree but she just you know she just kept doing her thing and she ended up retiring in 1989 and then like so somewhere in the weird like abyss of the internet because there's not a lot on her there's also a point where they're like okay so she retired and then she became a real estate agent which I'm not really sure <laughs> I don't know if that was, like, really a thing, because I only saw one thing, like, one page that said that. But I think I just would like to take a moment to imagine what it would be like to be a real estate agent after being a NASA engineer. I just imagine, like, going through maybe, like, a ranch-style house. She's walking you through it, telling you a little bit about the neighborhood, um, you know, all the different features, new roof in the last like two years, um, updated hardwood <laughs> floors. Um, and then you step outside of this lovely lawn, it's fenced in, you've got a third of an acre. It's uh look at the landscaping, it's quite mature. Um, and if you look up, we've got um you can see all the different constellations. Now we've got um fill in the blank. I don't know enough about the constellations. But you just no. I imagine, you know, she could just casually pinpoint exactly where you are under, you know. The starry sky. <laughs> we have Orion. We have Beetlejuice. I don't, I'm pretty sure those two things aren't anywhere near each other. But yeah, no, she could just be like, yep. I, I don't know, man. I'd like to think that if she was a real estate agent, that she she loved it. You know what I mean? I yeah. imagine that she would like, she retired. She had a good career. And now she's just enjoying herself helping new, like, Married couples find their forever home. And, like, just such something so chill. And I think that's kind of... I feel like it's chill. It's a chill enough. If you're not... If, you, yeah. if it's not trying to be your, like, number one career, it's a pretty chill thing. Like, a side thing. Like, she's already got her I pension mean, from, like... Hey, yeah. But don't be dissonant for those people who do have it as their no. number one career. Oh, no. I'm not. No, I'm, I'm sure, like, if you're, like... 
if you're in it, like, you're hustling hard. But, like, she didn't, I'm sure she didn't have to worry about it because she got her pension from NASA. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, no, it's definitely a hard, like, a hard field to be in. But for her, I'm, like, if she were it, she was probably just like, oh, this is fine. Everything's fine. Like. Mm -hmm. Okay. So she may, she may or may not have sold real estate after being retired. Yeah. All right. That's nice to think about. I don't know. She had a pretty chill life after she retired. Like, she just spoke at conferences, and then she passed away from natural causes in 2011, the age of 78. Like, I mean, I, it sounds like her biggest impact was her programming on that particular type of rocket propulsion. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that we still use today. There's no way that, like, I there's no way that space, like, going out into space would be possible without her her brain behind it like other I yeah, mean, other her, women, her contributions like, yeah like she just made it like she's one of the many women who made solid contributions to space like travel and going out and like learning more about the universe so we commend her yeah and i imagine her her being there and her going through and moving up the ranks and then later on working as a um you said an equal opportunity counselor yeah Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it sounds like she really, after the fact, you know, was trying to make it easier for other women like her to come through and to move up the ranks and to ideally probably make it easier for them for what she had, you know, dealt with. Yeah. So it's not, you know, it wasn't just about her, but it was about other women. And that's pretty fucking cool. So we yeah. salute you, Annie Easley. One of my biggest disappointments in life is that I will most likely probably not to get to travel in space. Wait, you, you you want to do that you want to go out up? yeah i want to be in space nope i want to travel in space and there's this like kind of cold bitter sadness in me that i'm most likely never gonna have the chance to experience space travel and if i do i'm gonna be very old and about to die no when it finally becomes like a thing that i can afford why? Why? Or common do enough. You, it's I know. I have no desire. It's amazing. I have okay. zero desire. <laughs> Think of all the centuries that humans have looked up to the skies and thought, like, if only I could fly like a bird. And now we bitch and complain when we have to go through TSA and take off our <laughs> shoes and take off our belts and we're delayed on the runway and we're like, this is such an inconvenience. We were supposed to take off 20 minutes ago. It's cramped. It's hot in here. Where's my free coffee? And we're, we're fucking flying in the sky. All, centuries. Centuries humans have been denied that right. And we are just on the cusp of space travel for everyone. And I will probably not live to see it. That's cool. I don't need, to, I don't need it's, it. It's not cool. I don't cool. need it. I, I don't. Ugh. <laughs> I have no desire to be in a void of cold death no no yeah but what if you're going to another planet wait first off the travel time it would take to get there you die again this is why i will probably most likely never see this in my lifetime because i'll be dead by the time everything's really kicking off but i mean okay if i can afford it we're gonna be two old ass ladies and i'm gonna book us a vacation package a two-for-one special and your ass is going to Mars with me. I don't want to go to Mars, Megan. I don't care. We're going to be fine. We're going to have fun. Damn it. We're, if I there's don't... art museums on the planet, we're hitting up those goddamn art museums. <laughs> I like the ground. I like Earth. Earth is nice. This is where my feet need to stay. I don't. I barely, totally you know, great. I barely like flying. We'll probably just be in stasis the whole time. All right. Do you, do you remember the last time we were on a plane? And how I acted, like, I, I fly all the time. But still, I am extremely uncomfortable doing so. Hey, do you That's remember fine. the last time I was on a boat? Do you remember that? I just... When I, have we... What are you, Columbia. Well, and I was trying to think since then. I... Never. Okay, yeah, since like then, never. It's boat. been four years since we've been to Columbia. And I refuse to be on another boat. I don't do it. I won't do it. It was a fine boat. Nothing happened. It was nothing. It got us from one beach to another. It was okay. um. <laughs> it 
It was very Everything rocky. Was fine. You did not complain about drinking tequila and being on jet skis. I because who complains about those two things? They seem way more dangerous. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, I am not taking you to space today. <laughs> uh, we're going, we're going back in time. We're going all the way to early nineteenth century Boston. That's where we're going today. What? Okay. Let's yeah. go to Boston. All right. So we're going back in time. We're going up to Boston. Quick car ride, I imagine. It's doable. Road trip. And we're going to go meet Sarah Goodridge. Uh, and she is a early 19th century miniature portrait painter. So she was born in 1788 in a small town, uh, Templeton, Massachusetts. There was like less than 2,000 people there. It was a very kind of quiet area. She was the sixth of nine children. She was born to a a farmer and a mechanic. Um, And I love her parents' name. It's Ebenezer and Beulah Goodridge. What? Why? Isn't that amazing? Why? Yeah. Ebenezer and Beulah. And you know both of them are like, what are we naming our child? Well, we're not going to be assholes like our parents. Sarah's just fine. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Like, And the rest of her siblings, they all, to my knowledge, like have completely normal names. Um, oh but yeah, Ebenezer and Beulah. I just, I want to know what type of life they had in 18th century, you know, you know, kind of colonial uh, America. I mean, they saw like the revolution. I mean, the stories they could tell. So, yeah. So, 1788, she was born. And kind of from the start, she was always like an artsy kid. She was always drawing, always doodling. Now, given at the time, paper was really scarce. So, the best she could do is draw on, um, like, bark. And you could use, like, a pin and kind of, like, do some kind of drawing that way. Or a, a classic. Take a stick and draw in the dirt. Huh. Yeah. So, that's what she had to work with. As a kid. So she went from this small town in Massachusetts, like less than 2,000 people, to Boston, which had about 25,000 people at the time. Oh, no. Yeah. So she's like, see a Templeton, and it went to the big city. I mean, can you imagine how exciting that is? It's like a 17-year-old. Yeah. No, I do. Remember? Because we moved from buttfuck nowhere to a city. I mean, not buff like anywhere, but um, yeah, no, it's I mean, <laughs> such a big difference, especially as like an artist looking to like learn. There's so many more opportunities in the city. Right. So, so there she is and she's with her, her older brother and her brother got a job working at their brother-in-law's organ company. And so during this time, she's taking a few drawing lessons, but essentially she's self-taught. Uh, but she's working from a booklet on miniature portrait painting on ivory. And that kind of sets off her artistic trajectory for on the rest ivory. of her career. Yeah, on ivory. That that was like the in thing. What? Yeah, for miniature paintings. So portrait miniatures, they developed from the techniques of illuminated manuscripts, uh, which were like holy texts that, you know, the, the monks would, like, make these really elaborate drawings in, but right. they were fairly small, so that's where it was kind of started from. And this is, you know, kind of branching off in the 16th century, like, England, kind of France areas. So these small paintings, I mean, they were hot commodities because only the really, really rich could afford these. So with how small they are, we're talking stuff that, like, fits in the palm of your hand. Really, like, intimate gifts. If there was a big event going on, like if someone was going to be away, like at sea for a while, you could would get like a portrait done. If you had a child pass away, oh, that would be one way sad. to like, yeah, because I mean, at this point, we don't have photography yet. Right. So this is how you kind of uh, memorialize them. Um, and with how intimate they are, they can fit in like jewelry and lockets. So they became really kind of these cherished items and also had a bit of like a lover's history to them, too. So you could get, like, a portrait done of, like, your lover's eye. Because in oh. theory, like, yeah, like, only you would know who it is based off of this really specific detail of this person. So that's the gist of miniature painting. You know, popular in the UK and in Europe and then came over into the Americas and very much for, like, an elite clientele. And eventually miniature painting kind of was out when photography came in. 
because suddenly, you know, portraiture was affordable to a good many more people than these like handcrafted tiny paintings that at the tallest are two inches. So here's Sarah in Boston as a, as a young woman, taking a few years trying to develop her painting skills and started selling her portraits. So Boston during this time, we've got the start of the American Industrial Revolution, um, and that occurred with the first textile mills opening up. The city's growing. There's lots of uh, Im- immigrants coming in. You've got a large influx of the Irish. You've got anti-slavery speeches kind of going on. And so Boston's becoming this really big, you know, eastern city. So while Boston's, you know, undergoing all this growth, there's Sarah. She's hustling, you know, working on creating clientels and working on her art skills. And she was selling life-size crayon drawings, about five cents. Uh, with inflation, that's just over a dollar today. And then she was also selling her watercolor sketches. And those fetched a bit more money. So $1.50 at the time. Ooh, fancy. Yeah, for today, just over $30. Yeah. So, I mean, like, not bad. But if you're able to crank out quite a lot of them, you know. For, you don't uh, have to eat ramen. Yeah, for like a single woman, young woman in Boston, like eh, that's not a bad way to make some money. So by the time she's 24, this is in 1812, um, she's staying with another brother in Boston. She's kind of keeping his house and she's completely focused on developing her oil skills, working in paints. She briefly worked under um, this guy from Connecticut, Tisdale, and he kind of like center the way of Gilbert Stewart, who was just a little bit more established in terms of like portraiture and, you know, fine art painting. Because Tisdale did do painting, but he was also more of like a cartoonist. He's got some prominent like political work that was out there. Okay. And I think her family like really helped hook her up with working with Stewart. He was a big fan of playing the organ. And if you recall, her her brother-in-law ran a big organ company in Boston. Right. And he was actually the first in the United States to create the reed pipe organ. Oh. Yeah, this is as opposed to, like, the the pipe organ. It's a reed organ. I didn't know there was a difference, but now I do. So her brother-in-law, you know, has just developed the first reed organ in the United States. I was like, hey, this guy you're trying to work under totally loves playing the organ. Why don't we give him one? <laughs> And they did, and I understand he loved it. And, I mean, for years after, he worked with her and encouraged her. And her work really grew under his mentorship. So I think that's a good example of her her in-laws, like her brother-in-law. I think her family really, and she really was moved forward and up the social ladder because of who her family married into. Oh, okay. Yeah, because remember, she comes from, like, a fairly smallish town uh, by today's standards. Right. In Massachusetts to, you know, Beulah and uh, Ebenezer. <laughs> oh, can you imagine them getting into fights, screaming at each other, like their names? It, it's a mouthful. I mean, it's it's quite distinct. It's very classic Ebenezer. colonial American. <laughs> uh, they the cows are loose again. <laughs> <laughs> they had to have had nicknames. I'm sorry. <laughs> Like, how do you get that all out when you're so angry? (laughs) I don't don't want to think of their pet names for one another. (laughs) Imagine kind of like an American Gothic kind of vibe going on with them. (laughs) Um, They call her, they call him BB. I don't know. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Yeah, so Sarah just kind of like, she was like, Mom, Dad, I love you. I'm getting the fuck out of here. Yep. Uh, I guess she went from that to like the big city. Staying with family. So in 1818, at the age of 30, like, she officially lists herself in the Boston City Directory as a miniature painter, which, I mean, she got to be so excited. I hope she had champagne. Like, how exciting is that? Yeah, that's awesome. Essentially list yourself in the white pages. You're officially open for business. I mean, that's like dropping your website, your Etsy, really putting yourself out there today. So I like to think that she was really excited. Now, for the moment, we... We're going to zoom out a little bit, and I want to give you a little bit of context to, for that time in New England's history, like, what was expected of women, and kind of why Sarah, being an independent artist, albeit, you know, with the support and help of her family, why I think that's so cool and so badass and what really makes her, like, a feminist. So, in New England, 
in the early 1800s, we've got the Embargo Act of 1807. So that cuts off imports from Great Britain. And so as a result, Americans, we really had to increase our own um, manufacturing goods because we're not getting the stuff from the UK anymore. And there's one guy and he really kicked off the American Industrial Revolution. His name is Francis Lowell, came from a very wealthy family and essentially had the attitude that, well, if you just work hard enough, like obviously you can get good stuff in life because that's exactly what I did. Duh. No. Yeah. Like never mind the fact he came from a butt rich family. Um, but this guy is, he's impressive because he was interested in opening his own mill in the Boston area and went abroad over to Europe, toured the factories, wanted to see how they were doing it there, came back and opened one up and the whole design of it, he had memorized and copied from the factories that he had seen abroad. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. Like, so he toured them, memorized, like... The machinery and the layout and was like i can do this better so that super impressive so with that he comes back to the united states and starts his manufacturing and textile and from that he does the lowell system so factory conditions over in europe at this time were absolute shit you've got these really poor families kind of like the lowest of society working for these factories and you know shit conditions shit uh wages poor health because people they just didn't really give a shit about them at all so for him to come over to the united states and try to sell factory work he had to kind of uh do some rebranding on it so unlike europe in the united states there is low population but a shit ton of land So people really didn't have to work in factories. Mm -hmm. So because of that, workers in factories typically were paid more to attract them. But Lowell got around this by only hiring women. Mm. Um, Typically, yeah, eh, starting to go south a little bit. Um, So typically between the ages of like 15 and 35, these unmarried women. Um, So with his system... Like, raw cotton came in on one end and a finished product left on the other, Mm -hmm. which was really different from other things that were going on the time within the United States. Like, you've got the Rhode Island system in which the factory would make the spun cotton and then they would turn it out to other people to finish the cloth itself. And with the Rhode Island system, basically, they, they didn't really give a fuck who was actually making it. And sometimes there were children, like, as young as seven working in their factories like what the fuck lowell really wanted to try to clean things up so even though he's got these unmarried young women working for him he was like you know what yeah they're gonna work here but we're gonna make it great they're gonna have a place to live they're gonna live under these like chaperones we're gonna ensure they're like moral like you know purity (laughs) give them educational options No, and he, like, legit went through with this. That's that's actually, like, for what it was at the time, that's not awful. It, no. So he had these big ideals. And, like, the idea, it was in a good place because definitely compared to what was going on elsewhere in New England and definitely abroad in factory systems, this was, it was a lot better. Right. And so while this was going on, you know, women the same age of Sarah during this time that she's in Boston and trying to figure out how to be a painter. I mean, let's say she didn't have the support of her family and her, you know, her in-laws to help out. Like, this potentially could have been an avenue that she could have gone. Like, she could have been a factory worker just like them. Right. So while it was nice that they tried to do this, it's kind of hard to take these, like, enrichment classes after you've had a 13-hour shift. I know that struggle. Yeah. And you would just be exhausted afterwards. So for that kind of like educational offering, um, that only lasted a few years. Because again, like who the fuck wants to do that after 13 hours? I want to go to bed. Yeah. You don't want to have to go to some book club and talk about like, you know, (laughs) sentimental literature and analyze it and critique it. Nope. Tequila in bed. I Yeah, pretty much. Um, (laughs) So that fizzled out and by the second generation of Lowell's system things were going downhill and it was kind of falling more in line with what was expected of a typical factory work you know the the employees and the or employers and the managers you know kind of really didn't give a fuck about trying to enrich these young women who were working there and 
from this and the dissatisfaction of the women workers, they unionized and they developed the first successful unionized or unionization of women working in the United States in 1834. And at this point, uh, Sarah's 46 years old and it was the Factory Girls Association. That's pretty great. Yeah. The first female union in the United States. Now, spoiler alert, they kind of didn't really get a lot done because they had a lot of shit to go up against. Um, right. But they started it, you know, from this factory in, you know, Massachusetts where Sarah was living and at the same time. Eventually, they became the Female Labor Reform Association. That's in 1845. And if you remember from episode two, um, it's in 1848 in Seneca Falls. We've got the convention that launched the women's suffragist movement. So they're just a few... They're just like a few years off. Yeah, just three years before this that happened. Yeah. So in New England, you know, you've got this whole kind of like hotbed of women pushing, you know, anti-slavery, but then through that realizing that they can actually advocate for themselves, which led to the suffrage movement and kind of this whole gradual female empowerment that um, to an extent Sarah was kind of doing independently as an independent artist running a business, running her studio. So... Unions formed. That was one kind of avenue for women to work that, you know, if Sarah was an artist, she could have potentially have done. Now, during this time, you know, you've got these, the suffrage movement kind of coming to fruition, um, anti-slavery. You've got industrialization going on with like these factories. So you've got more women going into the, the work market um, and kind of out of the home. Totally bothered some people. And so, oh shit! <laughs> I know, I know. Surprise! You've got women who potentially become a little bit more economic independent from men, and uh, society's like, oh, calm yourselves, ladies. Just wait. We've got a good dose of uh, social oppression coming down your throats, so uh, this will be fun for everyone. Oh Jesus! <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's exactly what happened. So you've got these, like, changing attitudes, and then at the same time, you've got this, like, feminine mystique that starts creeping in. You've got these, like, you know, women's magazines. They all start creeping this kind of, like, cult of the domestic that, like, especially between, like, 1820 and 1860, it's, like, redefining this idea of, like, feminine behavior and this idea of, like, womanliness, of like that, and it became known as like the cult of true womanhood. Mm. Yeah, but like yeah, women can technically go out and kind of work a little bit, but like you still need to be a woman, and you still need to work at home, and you still need to be in relation to a man as like a wife or a mother. Gender roles. Yeah, they kind of settled in really heavy. So essentially. You know, it was for women to be the role of the mother and the wife and to cultivate piety and purity and submissiveness um, and to stay at home and, and to keep house for your husband. Um, and to an extent, Sarah did do that a little bit. Um, so she was living with, with her family. And, you know, while she obviously wasn't the wife because she never married, you know, she was still keeping house. And that was a big part of keeping up these, like, social expectations of you know, the house is going to look nice. Everything's going to be tidy. It's going to look like Martha Stewart came through here. That kind of, of sentiment. Snoop Dogg? That would be quite something. I would love <laughs> a special of Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg redoing a uh, early 18th century Boston townhouse <laughs> to its original design elements. Let's, uh, let's make this happen. Yeah, I don't, need, I don't know who I need to write to about that. <laughs> um, we TV. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, essentially, for all this work that women were doing, you know, the husband would provide security and protection, and the woman would take on obligations of housekeeping and raising good children and, like, you know, being a morally upstanding example for her family and making her home, like, this haven of health and happiness and virtue. Yeah. So, with all of this going on and that being kind of a social norm, like, for Sarah to to like not marry and kind of be doing her own thing. I mean, that's, that's pretty big. She was, you know, to an extent. I mean, she was conforming to what was socially acceptable at that time, but really kind of subverting it to an extent. So this one news article was complaining as to how these patriotic mothers manage, quote, to get rid of their responsibility for a day of sentiment and song. Uh, This is for the 4th of July in 1831. Mm. 
Like, they're bitching, like, hey, what are these mothers doing without their children? They obviously are irresponsible. And and patriotic. And yet the same guy, the same author, uh, he wrote a piece complaining about why are there all these children in church? This is annoying. They shouldn't be here. Way to complain that, oh, these moms are out having fun without their kids. And then in public, being, oh, these moms are out w- in public with their children. This is such an inconvenience to me. So he just didn't like women. I just being a dick. Uh, so, I mean, dick. that was kind of going on. Yeah. During during this time. So pulling back and fo- focusing back on Sarah. Uh, there's one quote from painter Mary Cassatt's mother, Catherine Kelso Johnston, that I felt like really resonated with her. And it was that a woman who is not married is lucky if she has a dedicated love for work of any kind, and the more absorbing it is, the better. And that that really applies to Sarah. Yeah. I mean, and she's really amazing because she had a lot of recognition during her, her lifetime and her career. So there she is in 1818 at 30. She's listed as uh, a miniature painter in the Boston City Directory. And a few years after that, she opens her own studio in Boston. This time, she's 32. And from her mentor, that Gilbert Stewart, with his, his own personal read, bribe, organ, her work got really good kind of under his instruction. And by the time she was 37, this is in 1825, um, he said to her, like, look, I want you to make a painting of me. And she was like, all right, I got this. And he considered it one of the best portraits of himself that had ever been done. A few oh, years so later. Sweet. Yeah, he loved it. He thought it was great. And for her, this is such a big deal. I mean, like 50 years after the fact, like his daughter was gushing about it, saying that it was the most lifelike of anything ever painted of him in this country. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So she did she did two copies of it. She, you know, painted two two of them. Um, because mm-hmm. he loved it so much. And the painting was set in a bracelet with a lock of his hair and his wife's hair. <gasps> oh. Yeah, because again, these are really like intimate portraits. Um, so it might have been that like he kept one with his wife's hair and she had one with like his hair. So there are these really small, like really beautiful, like sentimental like objects. So from doing that one, it her career like really took off with that. So there's this guy, Asher Brown Durant. I'll talk about in a hot sec. He was an engraver and he made a miniature engraving of this for the inclusion in the National Portrait Gallery of Distinguished Americans, which was published in 1834 at the age of 46. That's a huge deal. I mean, this is like a national publication or, you know, distribution with with this book. And she's in it. I mean, we talked about in the first episode, just the still shit representation of women artists in in things like that and here we've got this big hotshot who did her engraving and he's like best friends with the founder of the hudson river school from this her clientele and her reputation really expanded and she she did a lot with like the upper class of boston and was working with some pretty big hotshots and again remember this this is a girl who was born to like a farmer in 1788 no that's that's moving on up oh she hustled the fuck on her way up um, and it, you know, obviously was really a game of, like, who you knew and mm-hmm. how you could move on forward. So during her time, you know, she's doing these paintings of these very well-to-do families and their children, uh, wealthy merchants and political families and high-ranking military men. So, I mean, she really, she's, she did well for herself. And during her lifetime, her work was exhibited on four occasions. So starting when she was about 39 years old and, and running for about 20 years, I I mean, she had, she had her work in galleries in Boston and had shows. And now some of her portraits, they're in the National Museum of American Art in D.C., they're in the Metropolitan Art Museum, they're in the Yale Art Gallery, the New York Historical Society, they're in private collections. So even though her work, the subject matter, is very conventional for the age, um, I mean, she did a really good job and she really was able to market herself. Now, throughout her career painting, um, one constant was this guy, Daniel Webster. Do you remember him from U.S. history class at all? Uh, no. Well, so he was a lawyer. He was a congressman. He was a senator. He was secretary of state. It's so, starting to ring a bell. I just, I don't, we just never paid attention in class. I mean, yeah, we were in AP history, but like, I don't remember that at all. I just wanted no. to draw and play with clay. And there are notes, uh, the notes that we would pass back and forth. Yeah. 
Yeah, our doodling. Um, <laughs> yeah, I doubt in any of our doodles we would pass back and forth. We we made any critique of Daniel Webster and his uh, business interests during the Jacksonian Democra- Democratic period. No, not um, close. Yeah, no, probably not. <laughs> yeah, so he is a big hotshot, and Sarah totally falls for him. Um, in a memoir of President John Quincy Adams, published in the 1870s, he referenced the gigantic intellect, the envious temper, the ravenous ambition, and the rotten heart of Daniel Webster. Oh, no. Yeah, this guy was fucking trouble. Um, Who doesn't have that one ex-boyfriend? I know, and he was, like, her one thing. Like, I think he's the reason she never married, because she was just totally she had fallen for him so hard Mm. i feel like he probably had like a few women like that because it sounds like he was just a very big personality right so get this so on two occasions she went down from boston to dc to see him now keep in mind at this point we're in like 1828 so to get from boston to philly 14 hours on steamboat what i tell you about boats and steamboats 14 hours. Yeah. So 14, and this is in winter. She's traveling to see him. So 14 hours on steamboat, and that's just to get to Philly. And then from there, she's got to go to Baltimore, and that's that's also on steamboat again. And then from Baltimore to D.C. on railroad. No dick is worth that much time on a boat. Oh, oh, she was going for that dick super hard. I don't understand. (laughs) so that's about like and depending on how the weather is like that might be three days of travel just to go from boston no to dc um and given like nowadays you can fly it's like an hour and 45 minutes or you could drive it's like seven and a half hours yeah uh i mean so she was obviously really intent on getting down there so the first time she went in 1828 it, it was a year after his first wife died Mm. <laughs> yeah oh just wait because she, she, she was moving she left in the day after her wife died just to get I mean, there a year after she i know died. right She's like oh shit i better leave now these timetables are, are some shit last time i ended up in pittsburgh <laughs> and okay keep in mind to get from like philly to pittsburgh i mean that was quite a few days travel right. um so i mean traveling during that time little bit of a hot mess yeah so there she is on her way down and she also went down in 1841 uh this time she's 53 and he's secretary of state and he's kind of separated from his wife during this time Mm. so she smelled blood and i mean she went in for it Mm -mm. this is a woman she i mean definitely this is someone you're like sarah like he's such a dickhead like don't, there's got to be someone else. Like, why him? Better than this. <laughs> so there's got to be someone in Boston. I, I mean, she initially got to know him because he was a representative for Massachusetts. Right. So that's how that's how things started with them. So he obviously did not marry her after his first wife passed away. He married another woman. And I think he just, he went for that because that particular woman just had better connections and she was wealthier. And it helped, you know, move his political ambitions forward. Like, Boo. that's the type of guy he was. Yeah, yeah, again, probably a little bit of a dickhead if you're looking to get romantically um, <clears throat> romantically involved with this man. So over the time she knew him, she painted like a dozen watercolors on ivory of him. Ew. Um, I, she just, she like really liked him. Oh. Like, I mean, okay, you definitely have had those bad decisions in the past. I... And you're like, looking back, you're like... Oh, oh crap but like at the time you're totally head over heels for him and you're like yeah but they're like i like him i don't care if you don't when all your friends are being like mm, maybe not okay when was when was the last time i had that bad of a decision okay over so a, over a man one painting she did <laughs> for him it was not of him she personally delivered on that first trip when she was 40 years old in 1828 to D.C. Um, and it's a small painting set in this lovely box, like red lining to it. And with the ivory, it really, the light reflected off. And so it was this really beautifully um, kind of a, a 
illuminated painting that she did for him called Beauty Revealed of Her Tits. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, can we just for a hot second, can we just compare Beauty Revealed to... Two unsolicited dick pics. Okay, well, so I was thinking about that. So she goes all the way down to DC and gives him this painting. His first wife had like recently ish passed away. Mm-hmm. I think she's like, all right, this is my chance. Like, I he likes me. I like him. Like, I'll give him this painting. I like to think like after the fact or like leading up to it, she like mentioned to her best friend. She's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna go see Daniel. It's, well, I, you know, it's a few weeks away. I'm gonna go see him, but I made him this painting of my breast." <laughs> and I like to think her best friend was like, "Oh my god, what? I have to see it. Can I see it? Did you do the? <laughs> did you put the birthmark in?" She's like, "Yeah, I did that too." Be like, "Oh, I bet it looks so good. Let me see." <laughs> and I like to think that her best friend was like, came back to her and was like, "So you know, I'm courting Johnson, right?" Well, there's this other, there's this bitch Martha he's also seeing. And I just, Sarah, can you paint my tits? <laughs> and I like to think that, like, before you knew it, she's, like, doing these private painting sessions with, like, all these girlfriends of hers. And she's, like, painting their tits for, for their suitors or for, you know, their lovers or her, their husbands, you know, if they want to spice things up a little bit. Um, you know, they're 24, they've been married for 10 years. Um, and I I like to think that she, you know, made some money off of that until the one man approached her. I was like, you know what? I'd really like to give this picture to my lover and be like, okay, great. Like, um, do you want to do an eye or like your lips? Some people do their nose every now and again. And he was like, well, actually, no, I want to do a dick pic. (laughs) And, And she was like, excuse me? I'd be like, yeah, I... I, I I heard from someone that you you do like breasts, so I thought maybe you do like my dick. <laughs> Good day, sir. You can see yourself out. Like I really like to think she put her foot down and was like, "Excuse no. me, no." Nope. Uh, if you check that Boston City directory directory, you'll see I'm a miniature portrait painter. I do not do dick pics. Okay. <laughs> It's fucking great. Yeah, so this painting is kind of like the most like sensational of uh of what she's done. I mean, of course. Wait, yeah, and it's the most like revealing because she did do traditional self portraits, and three of her self portraits they're they're very you know traditional and very well crafted, and you know the later ones are more technically refined. There was one self portrait she did, and it's it's my favorite of hers, and she painted herself as an artist. So in the painting, she has her easel set up. She's not looking out at the viewer. Like, she's focusing on her work. And that was, like, one of the later self-portraits she did. And for that one, there's just this, like, maturity and confidence to it that I just absolutely love. Um, As opposed to the other three portraits in which she's more of the traditional, like, passive subject matter. Right. It's a lot more engaging. And I think that's also why we really, you know, her beauty revealed is really fun, too, because she's very forward, very direct and kind of really taking like ownership of how she's presented. (laughs) So contrasting that to how women of this age are supposed to be these very like submissive, pious figures. uh, She's like, here, Daniel, here are my tits. (laughs) I might be 40, but those bitches look good. (laughs) There's more where that came from. (laughs) and they do it's a great painting i mean it'll be on our show notes with some of her other work yes yeah so it's it's a fun it's a fun small painting so overall i mean she made money from whether or not she was making money doing all these you know black market paintings of her best friend's breasts i don't know (laughs) 
But with the money she made, I mean, she was able to support her her aging mother. She had an ill brother. She had an orphan niece. She was able to take care of them all from the money she made. And by 1850, so she's 62, her eyesight's kind of going to shit. And so she's able to take the money that she's made and buy a cottage in Reading, Massachusetts. So from her prime, she was painting three miniatures a week. But with her eyesight failing, things kind of settled down. And on a Christmas visit to Boston... In December, at the age of 65, in 1853, she she passes away. Mm. Yeah. So, thankfully, like, speaking as a visual artist myself, I think once my eyesight starts to go, that would just be really tough for me. She only had three years where she wasn't painting in the end. But, I mean, she had quite a few good decades of, like, really being able to support herself and support her family as a portrait painter in the early to mid-19th century Boston. That's unreal. Yeah. So, and for me, that reason, that's what makes her a feminist. Because even though overall the content that she was doing was, like, fairly conventional and expected, just being out there and being an artist and being a businesswoman and, again, like, unmarried, so doing it by herself, uh, was, like, a really big deal. And so I mentioned earlier that she also had a sibling that, like, one essay kind of sort of mentioned. So she had a younger sister... Eliza, who was also a miniature painter. Oh. Yeah, like this whole time I'm doing research right. on her and kind of jumping from all these sources. And only one is like, oh, hey, by the way, her sister kind of sort of did the same thing. Did she do the same conventional work? Kind of. Okay. So I by today's standards, so Sarah Goodridge being a painter, doing her thing. Today we're like, yeah, all right, that sounds normal, right? No big deal. So her sister kind of acts as like a better contrast to just how things could have potentially gone so eliza 10 years younger did go to boston for a little bit when she was younger but really lived in central massachusetts for the majority of her life and she did do miniature paintings but she didn't have the mentorship like sarah did at Mm -hmm. all you know she didn't have a brother-in-law to help pawn a reed organ off on a gilbert stewart to help out yeah so she was kind of doing things on her own she was doing some portraits of you know well-to-do families in the area but obviously living in a smaller area with a smaller population she didn't have all the connections and the resources that sarah was definitely able to utilize so she's done you know a a few portraits the american antiquarian society has 12 of her works that's the largest collection um there's a few in the metropolitan museum of art and also in the yale university art gallery which also has work by sarah too but she she lived a much quieter life like she she worked you know she did not have a studio like sarah did she eventually got married i think she just kind of was in a sense a little bit more susceptible to what was typically expected of women at that time and you know in that area so kind of comparing that and taking another look at sarah i mean it just makes me appreciate her more you know that while she wasn't necessarily like you know a big founder of a new art movement like the hudson river school i mean she was holding her own so that's that's why I did her. That's why I think she's interesting. And that's why you needed to know today about a miniature pair of tits. I, f- I feel like a bad feminist for saying that. But, I mean, hey, she – that was of her own sexual agency. And she really put herself out forward. And I really love that Daniel Webster's family held on to it for, like, decades after the fact. <laughs> yeah. I oh mean, they God. kept it. They were like, that's gross. Great, great grandpa probably jacked off to this shit. I don't know. But we're going to sell it at Sotheby's in 1980. <laughs> and we're going to make a shit ton of money. <laughs> and they did. I think they drew almost $15,000 off of this painting. That's like oh my less God. than two by three inches. Yeah. Are you? Oh, my God. I'm serious. So, yeah, it was sold uh, in the at 1980, uh, went up to the market, snagged, and then eventually um, a private collector who – it was this couple who was really big into American miniature paintings um, – donated their collection to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And so that's how the Met acquired that particular painting and how Daniel Webster's great-great-great-grandchildren made a shit ton of money off of Sarah's tits. Which actually, thinking about it, just kind of <laughs> – yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that just seems kind of depressing now that, you know, family probably never saw any of that money from any of her works. And yet, yeah, know, here we are, society making money off of women's, you know, sexual objectification. But I mean, hey, when she did it, it was totally like, you know. Yeah, when she did it. Was it was all her putting when herself out there, looking good, including her birthmark. 
yeah, so that's that's Sarah Goodrich. And now you know about this uh, early 19th century American uh, portrait painter. Oh, my God. Yeah. I love that. Um, thank you guys for listening to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. Uh, Milana, if people are interested in uh, finding out more or seeing the show notes, where can they go? Yeah. Okay. So we have a website. It's myfavoritefeminist.com. If you wanted to uh, reach out to us, you can email us at info at myfavoritefeminist.com. We also have um, a Facebook and Instagram, both under My Favorite Feminists. So you can hear us on our website, but you can also find us on Spotify and iTunes. And on that comment section on iTunes, you can go ahead and answer this week's question, which is if you had to choose between being on a rocket being shot into space or being in a submarine which one would you do both personally sound like a nightmare to me but you let me know so until next time guys i'm milena and i'm megan and this has been my favorite feminist bye guys Big